morning, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Haven't done it for a while. Do you want to say hello to somebody beside you or in front of you or behind you? I know most of you love it. Go ahead. Can I just give you that? Is that all right? Okay, uh, great. I, uh, I've, got, I've got a question, and uh, this, is, this is for those who are Christians, uh, which I know is the majority here this morning. Do you know that you are? Do you believe that you are? Do you feel like you are a conqueror? I know that might sound like a, a rather strange opening question, but, but this idea of Christians being conquerors or conquering is one that we, we find in Scripture. And even as I, I mention or raise this, I wonder how many of us right now are thinking of Romans 8. You know that great chapter that finishes with the fact that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But just before that, you read the line, you read the truth, you read the fact that we are what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Romans 8, 37. Well, in Revelation, and for anyone who is visiting, that is the book, or rather that's the letter that uh, we are reading together as a church at the moment. And this, this word and this idea of conquering and being a conqueror appears a lot in Revelation. In fact, it appears more in Revelation than in anywhere else in the Bible. It appears in our text for today, which is Revelation 15. And if you have a copy of God's Word, then I invite you to turn to it or access it on a device if you can. But it, it appears in our text for today. But what I want to do is before reading it, I want to kind of draw attention to some of the other places that it has appeared so far in our journey through this letter. So in Revelation 2 and 3, and I know we only looked at Revelation 2 and 3 on Sunday evenings before Christmas, and some of you may not have been there, but in Revelation 2 and 3, at the end of each and every message to the seven churches, there is this repetitive phrase. Seven times in two chapters, at the end of every single message, you find this phrase, to the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes, which, same thing, seven times. Now, that isn't a reference to Jesus, to the one who conquers. It might sound like a reference to Jesus, but it's not. It's a reference to Christians who listen and who pay attention to Jesus and who remain faithful to him. Conquerors. Then in Revelation 12, where we meet the red dragon, Satan, we heard how he accuses Christians day. He accuses Christians day and night before the throne of God. That, that's his tactic. That's what he does. But then we read this, and they, that is the Christians, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. So those 
who have been saved by Jesus, those who remain faithful to Jesus, no matter what, even unto death, they are conquerors. They've conquered. But then there's a twist or another aspect to conquering that we need to recognize because when you move from Revelation 12 to Revelation 10, you read this then about the first beast, which is one of the dragon, one of Satan's sidekicks. We read this. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So the question is, have we conquered? Are we conquerors or have we been conquered? Discuss. Now, if you have Revelation 15 in front of you, let's read the second verse of our text for today. It says this, and I saw, that's John, by the way, for anybody following this, and every single time we keep asking the question, what did John see next? Well, here he sees next, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast, and its image, and the number of its name. So, what is going on? Chapter 12, we've conquered the enemy. Chapter 13, the saints have been conquered by the enemy. Chapter 15, those who have conquered the enemy are in heaven. The challenges of Revelation never let up, do they? Never let up. So here's the answer. We are conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Jesus by his blood. And we are conquerors by being conquered by the enemy and remaining faithful to Jesus. Now, I know that sounds like a total contradiction. That sounds like a complete paradox. So let me explain. So we all know Romans 8, 37, okay? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who knows Romans 8, 35 and 36, the two verses before Romans 8, 37? Here's what it says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Because these all come with the territory, by the way. Or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed. We're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, as Christians, we are not immune from tribulation. Pressure upon pressure. We're not immune. We're not immune from distress. We're not immune from persecution. Paul highlights this here. Jesus went on about it time and time again. He said it in a number of occasions. Listen, the world will even hate you because of me. The enemy is out to get us and his diabolical impact on Christian lives today is acutely felt right around our world. We are in a battle. We've been saying this, we've been stressing this, we've been discovering this, we are in a battle. So some Christians today, right now, as we meet here, are facing physical persecution, including death for their faith. There's people today dying because of Jesus. They're remaining faithful to him conquered by the enemy, but more than conquerors. 
through Jesus. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every single day. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. That's the current stats from Open Doors. Conquered. But more than conquerors. For other Christians, they may face less overt difficulties and hassles because of their faith, so, but it's still tough. And so, for example, there are many Christians who are unwilling to compromise the Word of God today. They're unwilling to sell out. They're unwilling to dilute their discipleship. And so as a result of that, they're experiencing ridicule at work. Abuse, maybe isolation, alienation, hostility in their local community. Conquered by the enemy, but more than conquerors. And I could go on, but you get the point. Christians are being oppressed. Christians are being attacked. They are being ostracized. They are being pressurized. They are being squeezed. They are being canceled. They are being conquered by the enemy. But they're more than conquerors. They have won. They have overcome. It's a paradox, which is why in Revelation 15, as John sees, what does John see next? He sees into heaven, and as he sees into heaven, he sees those who have conquered the beast, and they're standing, singing their hearts out. So back to my opening question, do you, if you're here this morning, you are, do you know you are, do you believe that you are, do you feel like you are a conqueror? I hope you can answer with a renewed or some level of confidence. Yes, absolutely. Realizing that by the blood of Jesus you are, by remaining faithful to Jesus you are, but you live in the context of an enemy whose explicit intention is to conquer you. We are in a battle. Two weeks ago, as, uh, as we attempted to unpack Revelation 14, I identified six distinguishing marks of a true believer, okay? I'm gonna give you a second to think of one of the six, okay? If you were here two weeks ago, please, even if somebody remembers one, I'll be happy, okay? But I identified six distinguishing marks of a true believer based on the first five verses of Revelation 14. Can anybody remember one of them and then we're just gonna stop and I'm gonna tell you the rest, okay? Go, one. Oh, two or three, that's very impressive. Yes, here we go, brilliant, you've made my day. Redeemed. That's who we are. We've been purchased by a price. We are surrendered. We've been given over to God. We are faithful. We should be. We're faithful lovers of Jesus. We're not sleeping around. We're followers. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We're Christ-like. In other words, we speak truth. We live truth. We are known for our integrity. We are living blameless lives. That's what we are called to. That's what's meant to mark us out. And we are also singers. Well, this morning, I do I want to add a seventh distinguishing characteristic. We are conquerors. True Christians are conquerors. In a moment, we're going to pick up again on that sixth distinguishing mark of singers, but now we're coming to actually read our text for today. Don't worry, that was not the introduction. That's half the sermon gone, okay? <laughs> but let's actually read our text for today. This is Revelation 15, which is the shortest chapter in the whole book or the whole letter. Although we're... we're even though it's really short, we're only going to read the first four verses because I just want to keep dragging Revelation out as long as possible. <laughs> Not. Uh, 
But the reason I'm, I'm stopping at verse 4 is because from verse 5 to the end of verse 16 is all one section. It's a grim section. But it's all one, and that's next week. So here's verse 1 of chapter 15. Keep your seats for the, the time being. Then I saw, as I say, another sign in heaven. What does John see next? He sees another sign in heaven. It's great and it's amazing. You may not agree. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, before we read on, I need to do a bit of a quick recap so that we get our bearings, so that we have some idea where we are, especially if, if, if you're visiting here today. But in Revelation, there are, broadly speaking, there are three sets of seven. There are seven seals opened, there are seven trumpets blown, and then there are seven bowls which are poured out. And in broad terms, they depict and they represent judgment at various levels and to various degrees. So in chapter 6, the seals start to be opened. But between seal 6 and seal 7, there's an interlude. There's a pause. There's a break. All of chapter 7 is the pause where there's a question asked. Again, if you've been part of the series, hopefully you'll remember the question that was asked in chapter 7 was, who can stand? Who can stand the judgment of God? Who can stand before God? And the answer is given in chapter 7. Those who are saved and those who are sealed. Then in chapters 8 and 9, six out of the seven trumpets are sounded. But then there's another pause before the seventh trumpet is blown. And that particular pause lasts through chapter 10 and right down to verse 15 of chapter 11, where we come across an angel with a little scroll and two witnesses. And the week that we got there, we talked about the bittersweet taste of God's word and the whole idea that the church, our function, our role, is to be witnesses to Jesus right now. Then the seventh trumpet is sounded at the end of chapter 11. And then in chapters 12 to 14, John sees the battle that is live. He sees the battle that is live between the dragon, the red dragon, the great dragon, Satan via his two beasts, beast one, beast two. He sees this battle that is live between the dragon, the two beasts, and the people of God. A battle that has been raging since the lamb, since Jesus came from heaven. In fact, you'll remember the dragon tried to devour Jesus at his birth. That's Revelation 12. And this battle will rage until Jesus returns from heaven at some point in these last days. And then you come to chapter 14 where, as I said a moment ago, the people of the Lamb are characterized by those six marks. But also in chapter 14, and this was two weeks ago, the dreadful destination of those who are not people of the Lamb is described. And it is truly horrific. And we touched on it 
and we'll possibly and probably touch on it again before the end of this series. But that dreadful alternative destination is described in some way in chapter 14, and also two harvests are talked about. And so we arrive at chapter 15. And so John now sees seven bowls. So seven seals have been opened, seven trumpets have been blown, we've had all those pauses, and now we come to the seven bowls. Or what we've read so far, you have seven angels with seven plagues which are in the seven bowls. And as we read in that first verse of chapter 15, these are the last seals, trumpets, bowls, there's nothing else. This is it. There's nothing more to come after the bowls. And with them, and so what it says is, with them, the wrath of God is finished. This is it. These complete God's judgment, and therefore, therefore, we need to pay careful attention. But before we confront the genuine horror of God's final fury, these opening verses of chapter 15 kind of serve as an introduction to it. They explain why the people of the Lamb are singers. And in these verses, we also read the recorded lyrics of their song. So please, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand for the further public reading of God's Word. I'm going to repeat verse 1, and then I'm going to read on to verse 4. So, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, they are standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of the God of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, here's the lyrics, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please do have a seat. So alongside the seven angels with seven plagues that are about to happen, that are about to be poured out of these bowls, John sees, as we've said at the very beginning, as John sees these seven angels with the seven plagues, he also sees all those who have conquered the beast. He sees the faithful people of God. He sees that great multitude from every nation who have remained true to the end despite the attacks of the beast. And here they are, standing beside the sea of glass. And the in their hands, and they are singing. They are singing. But look at what they're singing, because this is really important. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, those I don't think are two totally different songs. And the reason I say that is partly because the recorded lyrics in verses 3 and 4 appear to make up, they appear to be just one song. But the other reason why I'm saying that is because the song of Moses, which comes from Exodus 15, again, as we've been saying all along, to get revelation, you need to get the Old Testament. So the song of Moses is found in Exodus 15. And what, who is it sung by? It is sung by the rescued 
people of Israel who have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And that song, according to John, is now being also sung by those from every nation who've been rescued by the Lamb. So they have taken on Moses' song and they've combined the lyrics together and made this one song that they now sing for all eternity. The song of Moses was a song of deliverance. It was sung beside a sea sung beside the Red Sea after God had liberated the Israelites. How? Through 10 plagues of judgment. Connections. He liberated the Israelites through 10 plagues of judgment and by the blood of the Passover lamb. Here in what John sees next are the people of God from every nation. They're standing beside a sea and they're singing the song of the lamb who is our Passover lamb who by his blood has delivered them, has delivered us from impending and imminent judgment. And we look at these lyrics, and we need to look at these lyrics because we need to learn them so that we can join in. But we also need to sing them now because they tell us, they remind us who God is, what God is like, and what God does, and what God will do. And so their song begins like this. Great and amazing are your deeds. But what deeds are they singing about? Well, it could be any number you, could, you would think. But in this context, the deeds, the great and amazing deeds they are singing about are his judgments. It's his justice. That's why as the song goes on, in verse, it says, just and true are your ways. The judge of all the earth does right. If you go back to Exodus 15, the song of Moses, it begins, I will sing to Yahweh for he's highly exalted. Why is he highly exalted? For the horse and the rider, it's been hurled into the sea. Judgment. Justice has been served. Evil has been held to account. It doesn't, it won't, it never will have the last word. And as we've said so many times, we expect that, we long for justice. We want it. Do we sing about it? Do we thank God for his judgments? And therefore, when the Bible speaks about God judging or putting into effect his judgments, it's as much a cause for celebration as it is a cause for anxiety. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But God must remain true to his character. And therefore, alongside singing of his great and amazing deeds of salvation, we also sing of his great and amazing deeds of judgment his justice, this whole idea that he is going to hold everyone to account. God is going to put everything to right. We want that. But the implications of that are sometimes hard to stomach. The judge of all the earth will do right. Great and amazing are your deeds, God. You always do right. He is, as the song declares, he is, O oh Lord God, the Almighty. You're the only, you're the only powerful, strong, unrivaled, unequal God of the universe. And therefore, everything you do, including your judgments, is worthy of praise and worship. 
He is, as the song goes on, he is, O King of the Nations. It's a title ascribed to God back in Jeremiah 10, where nations have decided, you know something, we're, let's, let's forget God. Let's construct, let's make our own gods in our own image, so to speak. Jeremiah describes them as scarecrows in a cucumber field. Love that. Jeremiah contrasts these local created deities that people want to worship. He contrasts them with the God who is king, the God who is ruler, the God who is in charge, the God who is judge of all the earth, the God whose authority extends throughout the entire world. Great and amazing are your deeds, God. And so what is the right response to this God? Well, the lyrics of the song tell us in the form of a question. They say, who will not fear, O Lord? Who will not fear and glorify your name? You see, to fear and glorify God are the only appropriate responses. To bow the knee in awe and wonder. To bow in reverence and worship. To declare his praises. To glorify him. To exalt him. To extol his name. That is what the faithful people of God do. That's what they seek to do, and so they sing. It is not what everyone does. I, I, re I realize that. It is not what everyone does or chooses to do. And therefore, according to Scripture, they face ultimate final judgment, because justice must be served. And the song goes on to give the reason for this and the, the reason that we must fear and glorify God because it says, for you alone are holy. If you go back to the original song of Moses in Exodus 15, here's what it says. Who's like you, God? You're majestic in your holiness. God, you're perfect in every way. You're perfectly good all the time. Everything you do and say is right. But because you're a holy God, you cannot turn a blind eye to sin and evil. It's got to be judged. People have got to be held to account. There's got to be justice. And in the end, it will be served. And it will be served perfectly. And yes, severely. But there is no other way. And so the song finishes with the line, all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Or in some translations, depending on the translation you've got, and probably a better translation, your judgments have been revealed. All nations will come and worship you for your judgments have been revealed. And they have. And the most spectacular righteous act or judgment that has been revealed was the cross of Christ. Where all our sin on him was laid. Where the Lamb of God shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You shed your blood to defeat sin and death. You shed your blood, Jesus, to satisfy the judgment of God. In my place, condemned he stood. He 
And because of Jesus, we can be delivered from slavery, from eternal judgment. The people of God have been redeemed. That first characteristic we looked at two weeks ago, they have been purchased by the payment of a price. And that price, in the words of the heavenly choir from Revelation 5, for you were slain, Jesus, and purchased for God, redeemed for God, with your blood, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so we've been justified through the shed blood of the Lamb. We have been judged by God. Jesus. Divine justice has been satisfied. The punishment, Isaiah 53, the punishment that brings us peace was laid in him. And so when we eat this bread every single week, when we take the wine, we're saying to Jesus, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. God's righteous acts his judgments have been revealed and are being revealed. And for those who recognize that, for those who accept that, for those who believe that, you stand forgiven at the cross. And you will stand in heaven and you will sing your heart out about the great and amazing deeds of God. And for those who don't, and for those who won't, they face the inevitable and promised judgment of a true and a just and a holy and an almighty God, they face it alone, without Jesus, apart from Jesus, and that to fall into the hands of the living God is a dreadful thing. The full, the final, the furious wrath of God is coming. We edge ever closer. And one day, it will be finished. It'll be done, as these verses tell us. And then, and then, and we'll get there. Please, God, quick. And then a brand new day, a brand new world, a brand new reality awaits for those who have been redeemed, for those who are conquerors, for those who have conquered, for those who are the faithful, who remain 100% faithful. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is a song of deliverance. It's a song of freedom. It's a song of justice. And I pray to God, I pray to God that every single person in this room can sing it now and then we'll sing it forever. We're gonna close with a, a song that's become a bit of a theme track for this series, uh, Holy Forever. And there is the lyric in it that says, if you've been forgiven and if you've been redeemed, sing the song forever to the Lamb. So I invite you to stand and sing with us. If, if I have shared, I don't know if I've said, if I have shared anything that has disturbed, created an issue for, been a problem for, has challenged at a particular level, uh, will you please speak to me? Please speak to me afterwards. Uh.